can grab a Bible, you're going to need one, um, and you can turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. So I was expecting like a woo! <laughs> no? You're not like geeking out that we're starting a new book of the Bible? Uh, and, and so usually our practice here is that we just study books of the Bible as a church, and so this morning we are starting into... Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you are new to the Bible in the New Testament, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, then the book of Acts, then Romans, then 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've called this series that we'll be in for probably at least a year, um, we've called it Messy Church. And uh, the reason that we called it that is because if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians before, you'll know that the church in Corinth was very messy, <laughs> They, they had a whole bunch of issues and problems, and Paul's writing this letter uh, to them as a way to try and correct some of the, the, the mess that was going on. And, and I just, the reason that we're studying 1 Corinthians is because we're no different, right? Um, it's funny, I, I, I've had a conversation with a few people a couple of times where they'll say things like, man, the church today is just so messed up. We're all hypocrites. We're all arguing and there's division. Man, why can't we just be like the early church? And I'm like, have you read the New Testament? The early church was a mess. And yet we have this like, oh, this golden age and they never argued about anything and they all got along and, they're, and that's just not true. Um, the early church, I mean, nothing is new under the sun. We read about all of these problems that were going on in Corinth. And as I've been studying, I'm like, you could just call this first for St. Johnians or whatever, right? We deal with the exact same issues of division and mess in the church. And so we want to understand what this book has for us. Now, uh, in the first week in a, in a series... We need to do a little bit of background uh, to, to understand why this book is in our Bibles. What is this relationship between Paul, who's the author of 1 Corinthians, and the church in Corinth? What was going on? Like, where did this letter come from? When was it written? Why, why did Paul write it? So to give you a little bit of a timeline uh, in the life of Paul, uh, just to help with the background of Corinth and why Paul wrote it. Um, we, we won't go there, but maybe this week you can read. In Acts chapter 18, we're told that Paul goes to Corinth, and he goes and he preaches the gospel. He has uh, a, a couple with him, Priscilla and Aquila. They're tent makers, and Paul is a tent maker as well, so he kind of has a job to, to support his livelihood. And then he, he preaches the gospel while he's in Corinth, and a church is planted there. And Paul actually stays in Corinth for 18 months, about. So for a year and a half, he kind of stays put in Corinth, and he's preaching the gospel, and this church is planted. And if you do a little bit of um, study in the book of Acts and then history, like non-biblical history, you can kind of uh, line up different rulers and leaders that are mentioned. And we know roughly that the church of Corinth was planted, started somewhere February-March-ish of 50 A.D., that's the year that this church in Corinth began, and yet we know that Paul doesn't stay there forever, right? Paul moves on from Corinth, and he goes to Ephesus, 
and he stays in Ephesus for three years, and that's where he writes this book, 1 Corinthians, from Ephesus, and we know uh, that this, this letter was written sometime in the spring of either 54 or 55 A.D., Now, you need to know that 1 Corinthians is actually not the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. Um, In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he mentions, he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul's written to this church before. We, We just don't have copies of this first letter. So really, I heard one guy say, 1 Corinthians should be called 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians should be called 3 Corinthians, because there is this missing letter. Paul has written to this church before, and then we know that Paul received some kind of report, like a a messenger or an oral report, that the, the church in Corinth had misunderstood his first letter. Right, And we're going to get into that in chapter 5 because Paul clarifies what he meant when he says, I wrote to you in my first letter uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Paul then goes on to say, that's not what I, let me clarify what I mean. So the, the church in Corinth sent message or some kind of oral report to Paul saying, we didn't understand your first letter. And Paul heard that this church was plagued with all sorts of issues. Um, many different issues. And then the Corinthian church had actually written Paul a letter. He had received a letter from them, and they had, had listed out. Some, there, there was confusion about marriage in the church. There was uh, confusion about divorce, about pagan religions. Do we still participate in pagan religions? Or we, is it like cut and dry? There, they, they, they were confused about worship practices. Some of the church, was doubt, they were doubting the resurrection. And so Paul, think about it, Paul planted this church, and then he gets a, an oral report of, we don't understand what you're talking about, Paul. And then he gets a letter from them going, here's all the issues going on in the church. So that leads Paul to write what we have as 1 Corinthians, his second letter to this church. And really, the, the reason Paul writes is to respond to all of these questions, all of these misunderstandings, um, all of these problems that were, were going on in the church. So what was Corinth like then? Right? If we know Paul's relationship with this church, what was the city of Corinth like? And then by default, what was the church in Corinth? What, what was going on? Um, you can put up the map. Um, Corinth sat, I don't know if you can see it, Uh, It's the little red dot. It sat in this little piece of land. I I actually learned something new this week. That's called, a connecting piece of land is called an isthmus. And it sat in this little isthmus, this connecting piece of land between the Greek mainland and what was called the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And right in that little, little strip of land was the city of Corinth. And so you... If you know anything about like, uh, w- w- uh, what makes a really good city location, I mean, this is a great city location. The reason being is that they had ports for trade on both sides of the city of Corinth, which equals, in that day and age, very much wealth. Um, 
a ton of sea traffic came into Corinth. They actually, they, they, the, through archaeology, they dug up these trenches and they figured out that boats, smaller boats would come into port on one side and then the sailors would just pick up the boat and walk through these trenches and they would just portage through Corinth to the other side, the other seaport, and then just continue on their journey. So a ton of sea traffic came through Corinth which brought with it a ton of wealth and uh, many different cultures and religions just mixed and mingled all together in Corinth. Um, Corinth was actually um, world-renowned for their wealth, but also their loose sexual morality. Um, It was considered a busy, bustling cosmopolitan business center. And if you lived in Corinth in that day, you would see temples and Uh, different religions represented everywhere. Um, Here are uh, some of the gods and the different cults that were celebrated in Corinth. They worshipped Apollo, Aphrodite, Asclepius, Demeter, Dionysius, Artemis, Hera, Hermes, Jupiter, Poseidon, Tyche, Zeus. I mean, that's just a short list. There was temples for all of these different gods and all of these different religions. Um, One commentator I read said, if you want to picture what Corinth was like, take New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas and just kind of mash it all together. That was Corinth, right? Big business center, so much wealth, and so much immorality that took place there. And so you have a church planted in this city, a community of, of Christians who believed the gospel, were formed into a church, and they're living in a pluralistic, worldly, wealthy, highly sexualized city. I mean, does that sound familiar (laughs) at all to the world that we live in? I read that, and I'm like, that's us. We live in a pluralistic, worldly, highly sexualized, wealthy part of the world. I mean, it's a bit of a stretch. We are Corinth, essentially. I mean, this is where they lived. And so the church in Corinth was, like I said earlier, very messy. I mean, some of the things that you read about that Paul is going to address in this letter, um, you just go, I can't believe it. I mean, there's favoritism going on in the church. There was divisions over different leaders in the church, and we follow him, and we follow him, but we follow him. There's all these divisions going on. There was incest going on in the church. A man was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church was actually celebrating it. Um, There was pride going on. The Christians, the wealthier Christians, when they gathered together, were actually getting drunk on the communion wine before the poorer people showed up to the service. Can you imagine that? Showing up at 9 a.m. and a whole bunch of people are drunk at church? I mean, that's what was happening. There there was spiritual gift abuse. They were denying the resurrection. There was sexual immorality. There was lawsuits happening. Different Christians were suing other believers and taking them to court over different things. There was marital problems. There was idolatry. I mean, don't get me started on head coverings. I'm just kidding. We'll get there. Uh, And there was ecstatic, uh, unruly worship going on. In one church, all of these problems were happening. So it was interesting. As I was studying, there's some commentators who look at Corinth and they say, Corinth is an example of a very unhealthy church. Um, And I I actually disagree. And let me explain. 
Um, I think Corinth is an example of a messy church, but keep in mind, this church plant in Corinth is maybe at the most five years old, and it is made up of all brand new believers swimming in a secular, depraved culture who are bringing their background and their baggage into the church. So I read 1 Corinthians and I, and I go, well, what else did you expect? People who are called out of darkness into the church who know nothing else. Of course it's going to be, of course this, this baby of a church is not going to be like, we reject all sin and we're just all theologians. Of course not. I mean, that's us, right? If you have been saved by Jesus and you're brought into the church, you bring your baggage with you. So I, I don't think it necessarily means this is just a mess of a church that should close its doors. Yeah, it's messy, but what else would you expect? So um, years ago, I went to a church planting conference, and um, there was a church planter from Quebec, and I don't know if you know this, but I, it's probably still the same, but Quebec is the least churched place in North America. Um, not a whole lot of Christians in Quebec, and many people in Quebec who have grown up, uh, these newer generations, have zero understanding of Christianity, never read a Bible, never been to church, have no idea what the gospel is. And so this church planner in Quebec was sharing that people were getting saved in his church. Young people were coming to know Jesus, and so he held a baptism and a membership class and at this membership class, because all of these brand new believers who have no idea what it means to follow Jesus, he had to, because there was stuff happening, he had to sit down and go, okay, listen, you guys are followers of Jesus now. You are not allowed to have sex with people who are not your spouse. And they all went, what? And he showed them, look, this is the sexual ethic of Christianity. And they all went, okay, I guess it's, it's in there. But right, they had no idea. So think of Corinth, right? You're growing up in this pluralistic, highly sexualized culture, and then you're, you form a church. Well, of course Paul has to write them and go, oh, guys, what are you doing? No, 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 no. Let me explain how to follow Jesus. So how does Paul then begin a letter to a group of people who are arguing with each other, sleeping around, getting drunk at communion, suing one another, allowing incest to happen in the church, and actually questioning Paul's own authority as an apostle. How would you start a letter like that? Paul starts by praising God for the church in Corinth. So if your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians, we'll start in verse 1. It says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother, Sosthenes. So right at the, at the beginning, I mean, it's, Paul starts most of his letters like this. But he's just reminding uh, the church in Corinth. He says, right, this is coming from Paul. And I was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. We'll understand why this is important later on. Because like I said, some in the church in Corinth were actually questioning, does Paul even have the right to be an apostle Right, his story is so different than the other apostles. He didn't actually, like he wasn't a disciple, one of the 12, right? So does he actually have authority? So that's why Paul says, I have been called by the will of God to be an apostle. This is, this is the authority that, that, I, that I have, Paul is saying, because throughout the next 16 chapters, he's going to uh, uh, correct a lot of practices that were going on 
And the reason that he is allowed to do that is because he was called by God to be an apostle, that kind of authority. Now, as far as Sosthenes, we don't really know who that is. Um, Some have said, well, there's a guy named Sosthenes mentioned in Acts chapter 18. Maybe it's the same guy, but we just just don't know. Clearly someone that traveled with Paul and and, and was a brother, but we don't know much else. So that's the the greeting. Paul's reminding them, hey, I'm an apostle. I have authority, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice that that Paul begins his letter by saying to these Corinthian Christians, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus and you are called to be saints. So the word sanctified literally means to make holy, to set apart something. And the word saint just means to be holy. It's very, they're from the same root word. Sanctified is the process of being uh, uh, made holy, and being a saint is that you are holy, you're set apart. So I read this, and I mean, we're two verses in, and I'm like, how can Paul say such nice things about these idiots? <laughs> Honestly, I read that, and I go, you want to know how I would start? Paul, called by the will of God to the church of God that is in in Corinth, knock it off. That's how I would start. Like, how could Paul have anything good to say about these people? And what he's doing, actually, is there's a deep theological truth that's going on here that I think many of us Christians forget. Um, We assume as believers that our right living and my behavior and my performance and my obedience is what makes me righteous before God. Many of us, either you grew up like that or or you, you, you lived in a system where that was taught where you must be good enough to earn your your righteousness. And many of us think that, that we go, well, once the church in Corinth got their acts together, and once they began to actually obey and live holy lives, then they're holy, right? And we, we would say the same, okay, once I obey better, and once I live righteously, then I'm righteous. But that's actually not true. What's true is that your righteousness comes from outside of yourself, when, when Paul says to the church, like this messed up church, when he says, he calls them the sanctified in Christ Jesus, he's saying God has sanctified you. God has set you apart. God has made you holy. He liberated you. He put you into right relationship with him. You are a saint, he calls them, in spite of all your sins. And they're called saints because of God's call. They didn't achieve it and they didn't earn it. And so as a Christian, you are called to be what God has already made you, right? You're not called to earn it. You're called to be what God through Christ has already made you to be. Um, Theologically, this is called um, imputed righteousness. And what that means is that um, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, right, if you have, have heard about the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, for you, and by faith you believe in that, you trust in that for your salvation, then imputed righteousness means God 
he regards or he reckons Christ's righteousness as belonging to you. Um, Martin Luther called this the great exchange. He says, this is amazing that Jesus would actually take your sin and bear it on the cross, but that it doesn't end there, but then Jesus would actually take his righteousness and then credit it to your account. So then when God looks at you, he doesn't see you trying to be righteous. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul can look at a messed up church and say, you're saints. Let me show you uh, where this is shown in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him, that's Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you're standing before God, your holiness and your righteousness, it's not based on you. It's not based on your obedience, it's not based on your morality, it's not based on your ability or your gifts. Your righteousness is actually a gift given to you by Jesus. I mean, Romans 5.17 says, for if because of one man's trespass, this is Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, and look, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.30 Paul says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. If we're in Christ, Christ became to us our righteousness. And I mean, really, really clearly, Philippians 3, 9, Paul, he's just listed a whole bunch of his credentials. I'm a, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I did all the right things. I followed the law. I was a Pharisee. I did this and that and that. And then he says, well, it's all just nonsense and garbage. And he says this, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we ask, why can Paul hear about a church stuck in sin, misunderstanding aspects of theology, fighting with each other, why can he look at that and say, I am just praising God for you. You are sanctified and you're called to be saints. It's because positionally, God looks at the church in Corinth and if they're in Christ, he sees them as holy because of the righteousness of Jesus that was given to them. Now, we don't have time to, now, we, as we go through, it's not like Paul's saying, so don't worry about how you live or anything like that. No, of course not, right? We don't swing all the way to licentiousness because we go, I don't have to be righteous, sweet. No, 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 no. Paul's going to, I mean, he's going to really hammer them on their right living, but he goes, listen, your righteousness is actually given to, to you. It's not about your performance, the Corinthians have a long way to go, and so do we, before their behavior matches their status. But what Paul is reminding them is, hey, God is faithful to do this. And then the rest of, of Paul's greeting in verse 3 is very standard. He just says, grace to you, peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 4 to 9 as Paul continues in this kind of, this vein of thinking of just praising God for this messy church. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. I go, really? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, 
in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul goes on to thank God for this church, and we go, well, why? And he tells us why, because of the grace of God that was given to them. Paul says, you were enriched in Jesus. Um, You have all these gifts of speech and knowledge, which is amazing, because if you know one of the issues that Paul's going to write about later, this was the very gifts that the church was abusing, (laughs) So Paul's saying, there's nothing wrong with the gifts. I am praising God that he gave you gifts of speech and knowledge, and he's going to get to, now, stop abusing these gifts, but he still praises God for these evidences of grace that he sees in the church in, in Corinth. Paul reminds them, these, hey, these are gracious gifts from God. God's going to be the one that's going to sustain you, Corinthian church, till the end. And then he says, guiltless. Right, and I read this book and I go, they are not guiltless. They are very guilty. But Paul says, God's going to sustain you to the end, and in the day of Christ, you will be guiltless before him. And God, notice God in verse 9, God is faithful. He's the one who's going to do it, church. I think these nine verses are just an amazing start to this letter. And you have to understand, Paul's not... Um, uh, I I read one commentator who said, well, Paul's just being sarcastic. I don't think so. It's not as if he's going, yeah, I always thank God for you. No, 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 no. He's actually, he's genuine. You read Paul because you read all of Paul's other letters, and he thanks God for these churches. And so he's he's genuinely praising God for these Christians in, in Corinth. He's sincere about but about saying, you, you're the sanctified in Christ. You're saints, you Corinthian Christians. He actually thanks God for the very things in the church that were being abused and causing him grief. He says, thank you, God, that you gave them gifts of speech and knowledge. So even though Paul, in the chapters to come, I mean, he doesn't hold back. He's going to speak very strongly to them. He never ceases to be thankful for them. Because in every redeemed person, there is always evidences of the grace of God in them. Every follower of Jesus, there is always evidences of God's grace. So two things I want to apply from this passage, just kind of principles as we go, okay, well, what is this for us? Like, how do we follow Jesus? Um, First is this, if you're going to grow in your likeness of Jesus... Um, you need to know what your identity in Him is. And here's what's really key. Correct living is always rooted in correct thinking. Right living is always rooted in your understanding of the cross, in who who God is and, and who you are in light of that. Correct thinking always leads to correct living, but it's, it's not the other way around. And often we, we assume that it's the other way around. Well, if I can just learn how to live correctly and obey and be good, then my understanding will grow. And it's actually, that's flipped on its head. Your, your obedience and your right living and your morality is directly connected to how you view God and how you view yourself. 
Um, we, we often think, well, if I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps and be holy, well, then I'll be accepted and then I'll be loved and then I'm holy and righteous and I'm, and I'm set apart. And that's actually the opposite of the gospel of Jesus. The gospel says, no, 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 you've been called, you've been redeemed, you've been justified by grace through faith in Christ. Jesus has taken your sin. He's given you his righteousness. You are clean. You are holy. You are adopted. Now live in light of those truths. Follow and obey Jesus, but not to earn salvation, but because you already have it. Follow and obey Jesus, not to earn approval, but because you have been approved. Not to earn love, but because you are loved. So you, you have to, if you're going to grow in your likeness of Jesus and your obedience to him, you have to know who you are. Now, I have to give a couple caveats, and I'm, I don't mean in a weird New agey way. I was trying to think of is there a term for that besides new agey. I, what I don't mean is that you just have to like speak tr- positive things about yourself. That's not what I mean. Right? This, and that's kind of connected to a word of faith uh, theology where your words create reality and newsflash, it doesn't. Um, so I'll give you an example. Years ago, a, a, a lady asked me, you know, in the, the morning chit chat, how are you doing? I, and I was feeling sick. I had a cold coming on. I said, well, I'm not feeling great. I feel like I have a cold. And she said, don't say that out loud. Say that you're healthy. And I said, well, I can say that I'm healthy all I want. I still feel like garbage. <laughs> but it's that idea of like, what I'm not saying is that no matter, you just have to speak, oh, okay, I am this and I am that. That's not what I'm saying, right? It reminded me, if you've ever seen Moana, I'm not talking about Moana where it's like, they've stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you, right? You know who are. Not like that. It's like, what did you do at church? Well, Andrew sang Moana to us. But that's not what I'm talking about, where it's like, oh, just, just speak who you are and it'll manifest. That's not what, what, I'm, what I mean when I say you have to know who you are if you want to follow Jesus. It's not this kind of new age thing. It's not this, this uh, it's, it's often connected to the, the hyper charismatic movement where it's like, well, I can just be perfect, right? I had coffee years ago with a young man um, who was kind of, caught up in that, that, that movement, and he had read 2 Corinthians where Paul says, hey, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And he said, I don't have a sin nature anymore. The Bible says I'm a new creation, so I think it's possible that if I just speak that to myself, that I'm a new creation, then I won't sin anymore. And so he said, no, I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I'm a saint, right? Which I go, okay, yeah, Paul calls us saints. But then I just asked him, okay, well, do you still sin? Yep. So, well, what is that then? If you, don't have a, if you don't have a sin nature and you're just positively saying that you're a new creation, then, then how do you explain when you sin? And his answer was creative. And he said, well, those are demons impersonating me to think that it's me sinning. But I said, maybe, just maybe, you're actually a sinner and a saint at the same time. Maybe you will, to the day you die, battle your sinful nature, and yet maybe God still looks at you in Christ as holy and righteous. Why can't it be both at the same time? So when I say that, like, you have to know who you are, I'm not just saying every day wake up and, you know, repeat true things and that'll manifest. No, that's not what I mean. 
But oftentimes, and I would say almost all the time, when you and I sin, as we follow Jesus, when we disobey, when we do immoral things, it's because we've actually believed lies about who God is and who we are and what God has done. I think almost exclusively, when we sin, it's because that, that thought of sin, that temptation began because we believed lies about God. Is that not what happened in the garden? Satan didn't, didn't just say to Eve, hey, eat this, fruit. What did he say? Did God really say that you're not allowed to eat this? And so what happened? Adam and Eve believed a lie about God. God's holding out on us. God didn't tell us that we could be God. And then that led to them disobeying. And I, I, I would just challenge you. It's a great exercise. When you look back at sin in your life, ask yourself, what, what lies were I actually, what, what, what was I believing about God? So I'll, I'll give you a, an example because we got time. Um, many of you know that I, I dealt with, um, you know, sexual sin and looking at pornography and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I would just get so frustrated because i go, I know it's wrong. Stop doing it. Bad, Andrew. And, then, and yet I would just continue to do it. Right? And many of you are stuck in habitual sin, and you go, oh, I just can't get up. And as I thought back, okay, who, who, who was I thinking God was? Well, God was cruel because he made me to be this sexual being, and yet he said, ha, ha, can't do anything about it until you're married. And so he just, he was cruel, and he was unloving. And then who am I? Well, I'm just a depraved person that can't stop doing this. So I actually believed lies about the nature and character of God. And then when I, when I realized that, and I went, whoa, 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 that's not who God is. Then it became much easier to, to battle that sin than just give in because I knew that I was believing a lie. So much of the time when we sin and we, and we do things that disobey Jesus is because we're just believing lies about him. I think that's why Paul starts his letter this way. He goes, oh, you Corinthians, this is who you actually are. You're sanctified in Jesus. You're called to be saints. I'm so thankful to God for you because look at all of the grace that God has shown you through, through the gifts and, and think about that God is going to keep you guiltless until Jesus returns. Um, right living always follows right thinking. So I would encourage you, if you find yourself stuck in just patterns of habitual sin, more often than not, it's because you are still believing lies about who God is, uh, what He's done, and who you are. And you're going to notice that Paul, all throughout the book of First Corinthians, he doesn't just say, hey, knock it off, stop doing that. It's always rooted in the gospel always. So that's the first point. If we want to grow in our likeness of Jesus, you have to know what your identity in Him is. And secondly, one of the best ways that you can actually do that, right, know who, who you are, know your identity in Jesus, begin to, to grow, is by sharing evidences of God's grace that you see in one another. Um, lots of us are not good at this. It's much, much easier for me to point out your faults and the ways that you're failing than to identify God's grace in you. It reminded me of this Peanuts cartoon. If you, I don't know if you can see it, but um, 
Linus is just reading by himself, and Lucy comes in. It's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. What happens? I can feel a criticism coming on. <laughs> right? We're just so quick to do that, aren't we? It's so easy for us to criticize one another. And I, I think about even um, with my kids, it's a lot easier to point out, hey, your room's still messy. Hey, you're not doing this. Hey, you're not achieving enough. Hey, you've got to bump up those grades. Hey, this. Hey, that. Rather than going, hey, look at all the evidences of, of God's grace in your life. Um, we do this, right? We do this with, with our spouses, our kids, our friends, or, or whatever. We're very quickly to point out areas where they're, where they're failing and where they disappoint us and where they don't measure up, and we fail to actually obey what Scripture tells us to do, which is to build up and encourage them in what we see God doing in them. I mean, First Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Hebrews 3, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how do we do this then, right, practically? How do you identify and share an evidence, an evidence of God's grace that you see in someone? I would say two things. One, you need to know the list of the fruit, the, of, the fruit of the Spirit that's found in Galatians 5. Because Paul says, here's evidences of the Spirit in your life, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then secondly, you need to know the lists of the spiritual gifts in Scripture. Hospitality, mercy, teaching, leadership, encouragement, helps. And then what you do to brothers and sisters in Christ when you see that they are growing in the fruit of the Spirit or they're using their gifts you, you, you share that that is an evidence of the grace of God in their lives. So if you see someone who is growing in their love or growing in their peace or, or growing in their patience, tell them, right? Say, praise God, I'm, I'm noticing that you're actually growing in your patience with your kids. Praise God, that's an evidence of His grace, now, it doesn't mean that we just start complimenting everybody, right? I actually think flattery is a sin. Like, we don't we just go around and go, hey, you're amazing. Hey, you're amazing. No, no, no. It's an evidence of God's grace. So you say, hey, I've noticed the way that you are with your spouse, and I've noticed that you are just faithful and gentle with your wife. Praise God. That is an evidence to whoever you're talking to that you are growing in the Spirit. Praise God. I mean, that's what Paul's doing, is he not? The church of Corinth is a wreck, and yet he gives thanks at the beginning of his letter. He says, I am just praising God because of you. Look at the grace that God's giving you, Corinthians. Look at the gifts that you have. Look how God's going to sustain you. So my hope for us as we go through this book um, Paul is going to deal with a bunch of issues that the church in Corinth was dealing with, and many of the, the issues that are in here are issues that we have dealt with or we will deal with or we are dealing with. And so my goal is not that, and I, I think Paul's goal wasn't that we would just say, hey, knock off all the bad behavior, cut it out. In all of it, my goal is that we would go, look at who Jesus is. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Here's, here's who you are in light of that. And now, live like this. So as we move forward through this book, my, my goal is that all of us, we would know our identity in Jesus. 
His righteousness gifted to us, that we are sanctified in Him, that we are saints because of Him, that you and I would then identify and celebrate the evidences of God's grace in one another. I mean, even just practice, try that this week with your spouse, with your friend, with your kids. Look at their lives and identify one evidence of God's grace. And don't tell me, well, I just can't think of one. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is an evidence of God's grace in your life. So tell someone. And then, right, in light of who we are and the evidence of of God's grace in us, then we'll read these tough sections and we'll go, yes, I want to live like this, not because I'm trying to be righteous on my own, but because I am perfectly righteous in Jesus, and of course I want to obey what he has for me. So let me pray for us. So Jesus, I just thank you for um, this amazing start to the book of Corinthians. Um, God, it, it actually surprised me this week knowing everything we know about this very messy church, that Paul would begin by just praising God for them, by calling them sanctified in Christ, by calling them saints. And God, it is such a good reminder that our righteousness before you is not dependent on us. Praise God, because we would be hooped if it was our job to be holy and righteous before you, we would all fail. So God, we just praise you that the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us, that it's been given to us as a gift. So that means, God, if we're in Christ, when you look at us, you don't see here's the good, here's the bad, let's weigh it out. When you look at us, if we're in Christ, you see the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So God, help us to live in the reality of of who we actually are, that when we are tempted to sin, that we we would do a diagnosis of it and go, what lies am I believing? That's not who God is. That's not what He's done. That's not who I am. I don't need to live in this sinful way because I know who I am and I know who Jesus is. And I I pray that as a church we would become people who are very quick to share and celebrate evidences of God's grace in each other's lives. Um, God, we are not good. Forgive us. We are, I, I know I am so quick to just criticize and point out failure and sin and where people aren't measuring up. And God, I pray that even this week, all of us would find someone that we can share an evidence of God's grace in their life to encourage them and to build them up. So again, thank you for your word. I thank you for this book that we're going to study. Would you just do your work in it, uh, through it, in our hearts and in our lives? And so we just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.